Well, I thought that uh, in the absence of really going back more deeply into some of those passages we looked at last week and proceeding forward into further, further passages that deal with the subject of uh, the covenant, uh, I would basically backtrack a little bit this morning and, and just remind you of some of the places that we've been and, and to help maybe to fine-tune some of our understandings that we've gleaned from the scriptures. And you know, really, I won't put you on the spot and say how many of you can tell me what the heart of a covenant is in terms of its meaning. And unless you want to say, I know, I know, uh, I won't do that to you this morning. But uh, to go over you know, basically things like that and just how the idea uh, tends to develop and then maybe even to see how some of this that we see in the Old Testament anticipates the things we see in the New. So some of that uh, I hope to cover this morning. But again, at any point in uh, this exercise of review and of uh, anticipation of things to come, you want to chime in with a, a question. Um, comment, you know, you can feel free uh, to do that. Well, just coming back to this subject of covenant, it is a very substantial concept, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. I've always been amazed it's rarely explicitly stated in the New Testament, but I think the concept is um, there at key points to make you aware of the fact that the New Covenant, that we, we call the New Testament the New Covenant, or the Bible calls the New Testament the New Covenant, we've turned it into the New, New Testament, even the, our writings, they're really covenant writings, and they speak of the New Covenant that Jesus said he is inaugurated through his own blood, the blood of the covenant that he shed for the remission of our sins. And, um, of course, the book of Hebrews speaks about the mediator of a better covenant. It quotes, in fact, one of the, the longest passage of the Old Testament quoted in the New. Does anybody know what that passage is? The longest quotation from the Old Testament quoted all the way down in the New. Anybody know? It's Jeremiah 31. 31. Jeremiah's account of the new covenant. A new covenant I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, which my covenant they broke. Um, God speaks of uh, writing his law upon their hearts. He speaks of they will know me from the least of them to the greatest. And he speaks of that their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. That whole passage is quoted in, I believe it's chapter 8 or 10. It's quoted in 10 and 8, but I think one of those quotes are the full quotation, and the other is just an allusion to the quotation. It's a a brief recitation. Anyway, um, so you have a a major section of Old Testament teaching with respect to God's covenant dealings with his people um, highlighted in the book of Hebrews, and really definitional of of Jesus as the mediator of, of a better covenant based upon better promises. The only surprising thing you see in Hebrews is that he says this old covenant is obsolete and it's uh, passing away, Um, which is a strange idea because you think of covenant as God's oath-sworn promise. That's what a covenant is. God comes with an oath, he speaks an oath, he gives his promise that a lot of times is needed to be supported by an oath, not because God's in doubt as to the outcome, but people can be in doubt of the outcome. Abraham says, how shall I know that I will have the land? And God says, well, now I'm going to do more than just promise. I'm going to swear an oath, and he's going to swear by himself, and they do that little covenant ritual um, where the pieces are cut in two, and God's in a vision passes through 
of the pieces. God tells Abraham he can sooner cease to be than his promise will not be fulfilled. And yet the promise that's fulfilled is a certain and a sure promise, and yet you don't see it you don't see it fulfilled immediately. Again, God is the eternal God. He does not dwell in time. He's not the captive of time. He's not held in the grip of the tyranny of the urgent. Has to happen now. God is a God whose plans span the generations and the centuries and the millennium. And so you have 400 years before there's even the beginning of the fulfillment of their promise. But even there, it's not the total fulfillment. See, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant that God engages with human beings or through Abraham in which the end game is all the nations of the earth becoming blessed. That was the first promise to Abraham that God will give him a great seed and uh, that through uh, that seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And uh, of course you see that Abraham has a seed, he has a progeny, he has an issue, he has descendants, he has children, and he has grandchildren, and he has great-grandchildren, and yet those great-grandchildren rarely dwelt for long in the land uh, that God promised to them. Um, 400 years, they're in Egypt. The the third generation from Abraham, Joseph, uh, the sons of Jacob, 70 souls that are Abraham's um, children go down into Egypt and there they're, they're uh, brought into captivity, into slavery. Uh, they serve the, that nation for 400 years, it is uh, what God says. And then I will bring them back. And yet it's in the misery of their captivity in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, that we read that God remembered his promise. He remembered his promise. You have to say to yourself, well, what about all those people that were, for all those generations, were held in captivity and slavery? Didn't God care for them? Well, uh, yeah, but like all the other nations, as God has a general sovereignty and concern and care for all of his creation, and his sun shines upon the just and the unjust, and his rain falls upon the good and the evil. But yet the promise was to Abraham. And in a real sense, what you see the driving force of God remembering his promise to Abraham coming and bringing them out of Egyptian bondage, bringing them into the wilderness, bringing them ultimately to the land of Canaan, is he loved your fathers. He's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord didn't set his love upon you because you were the greatest of the nations. You were the largest of the nations. You were the best of the nations. You were the most righteous of the nations. But yet it goes on to say, he set his love upon you because he loved your fathers. The promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. But yet not all of his seed clearly dwell in the land of promise. You got people today that are looking for the Jews to come back to Canaan. Looking for the Jews to, I mean, you know, there was a reconstituted nation, of course, in 1948, 47, 48, whenever it was when Israel was formed. Thank you, 48. Israel was formed. I always get confused between when Israel was formed and when they kicked the missionaries out of China. I think that might have been 47. Maybe I'm wrong about that too. Anyway, but the point of it is that um, generation after generation after generation of Abraham's physical descendants did not dwell in the land of Canaan. And yet God did not, did not forget his promise. He brought one generation out of Egyptian bondage. 
He brought them into the wilderness and he brought them to the borders of the land and he promised Abraham. And of course, when the spies went in, they came back with an evil report and God says, and they said, well, we, we should have, uh, that we had died in the wilderness. They said, and God says, okay, you will die in the wilderness. And the generation died off in the wilderness until another generation, where actually it could be said of them that they, they were holiness to the Lord. They learned the disciplines of God and the, through the temptations that God put them through. God put them through training in the wilderness. And, and all those passages that Jesus quotes when he's tempted 40 days of the devil are passages that were quoted in Deuteronomy about Israel's experience 40 years in the wilderness. They have the parallel of 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness. And these temptations were given, God says, as Jesus says, that you would know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That you will know that you are to worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that you shall know um, that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. These are lessons they learned in the wilderness. This is a spiritual training they went through in the wilderness. So when they came the second time to the borders of Canaan, in the east of uh, the plains of Moab, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, even though Moses dies, yet Joshua's, Joshua is able to lead them in. At least as a people who in some measure will love the Lord and serve the Lord and follow the Lord, even though most imperfectly and most with stops and starts and stalling and starting again and the whole scenario that you do see in Joshua and of course it gets worse in Judges and again what God says as he says in his covenant threats that we're going to say something about this morning that they will be evicted again God couldn't bring that first generation who were stiff necked and hard of heart who would not heed the voice of the Lord they were simply stubborn and they were rebellious how could he bring that generation into the land and say, well, you go and supplant these Canaanites that I'm looking to evict because the iniquity of the Amorite had become full. These are pretty horrible, terrible people who do pretty horrible and terrible things. And I'm bringing in a nation to supplant them that's doing horrible, terrible things. Well, no. You see, the whole point of the Sinai Covenant is that it required hearing the voice of the Lord and obeying it. This was a covenant that you could keep or a covenant that you could break. And in that sense, it's very different than the Abrahamic covenant. Nobody can break the Abrahamic covenant. That's God's own unilateral commitment. The promise he gave to Abraham. And you know, you come to the New Testament and what do you see? You see Abraham's seed, do you not? First verse of the New Testament is what? Turn to it. First verse of the New Testament. I'm going to confuse it with Mark's first verse, so I'm going to look at it and quote it as is right here in my Bible. I think Mark says the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At least some of the manuscripts say Son of God. But here in Matthew, uh, although David's mentioned first, you see, Abraham's mentioned as well. The book of the genealogy, and that's also, again, very much like Genesis, isn't it? You think of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is the way John begins his gospel. But also in the book of Genesis, do you remember that you have about ten references every time this transition in terms of the history in the book of Genesis, some ten statements, the book of the genealogy, or the history of some, it depends on the translation that you're looking at. But it's a Hebrew word, uh, Toledoth. 
And it, ten times the history of the beginnings is told with reference to that formula, the genealogy of, or the generation of, or the history of, depending on the translation that you read. It's the same idea that's here, the same actual words, the book of the genealogy, at least in terms of the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Seed of Abraham. He's seed of Abraham. And the promises that he comes to bring are the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says that they will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, to do what? To sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. He comes to fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus does not come to fulfill the promise of the Sinai covenant, which they broke. He comes in a real sense to see that that covenant that is obsolete is supplanted by a new covenant. Jesus comes to bring in a new covenant. I know that we have many advocates of the you know, the, Jew, the Jewish people to whom many Christians feel a rightful guilt about anti-Semitism through the years that in some circles you're not supposed to say such things. You're not supposed to say that the, that the old covenant was abrogated or obsolete but, but Hebrews says as much so how can we not say it but Jesus does come to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and he does it in a way in which Paul references in Galatians chapter 3 turn to Galatians chapter 3 y'all with me Okay, Galatians chapter 3 I don't want to lose it because my, my brain this morning is filled with a jumble of notions and ideas and to set them forth in a, in a coherent way uh, is my great concern. I'll be able to set it forth in a coherent way. You hear what God does is in Christ he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Again, Abraham is brought up with the fact that he's the father of the faithful. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, verse 7. Uh, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you, all the nations shall be blessed. So Abraham is the prototypical believer. He's the model believer. And uh, as he was justified by faith, we are justified by faith like the faithful Abraham. And in that way, he becomes the father of many nations, even the Gentiles, who without circumcision become the children of Abraham. And, but how do we become the children of Abraham? Just because we have a similar faith that Abraham has? Well, it's not so much our connection to Abraham. Who goes around saying, oh, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham? Now, I guess, you know, understanding Christians could say that. They would teach a little song to the kids. Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. It goes a little crazy in some of these schools. The kids getting up and down, singing this thing. But anyway, um, we don't become children of Abraham by Abraham directly, or through Abraham directly, even though we have the faith of Abraham. Here's what Paul says. He says, um, now the promises, verse 16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Abraham and his seed. God says, I will give this land. God says, I will make them a blessing to the nations. It does not say, Paul says, and he's making a technical point here, that in some ways, it, you know, it could be a singular, it could be a plural, but the point of it is that Paul is saying it's the singular thing that God has in view. It's a singular entity of the seed of Abraham finding its culmination. 
Not in those many generations of the physical offspring of Abraham, who never entered into the land, who died in Egypt, who died in Babylon, who died in the diaspora. It's not those people to whom the promises were given. Again, the promise was given to Abraham and his seed. What did God have in mind? Well, Paul says, referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ, the son of Abraham. Christ, the seed of Abraham. Jesus, the son of Abraham. He's the physical seed of Abraham. And that's the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's God's ultimate plan and purpose, that he would bring restoration of the nation of Israel to himself through the Messiah whom he would send, who would be seed of Abraham, who would be son of David, is he's the one that's going to come and bring the restoration that was lost through sin. The Abraham, um, the Jesus who's the second Adam, the Jesus who's the son of Abraham, the Jesus who's the son of David the king, and he comes and he brings back the restoration of everything lost through the fall, not in many different kinds of messiahs that come about, or many different messianic figures, but in one figure who is Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, through whom uh, our redemption comes, and through whom um, this salvation that brings blessing to the nations has come. So Paul uh, tells us it's in Christ we become seeds, the seed of Abraham. Again, that's how he ends this, uh, verse 22. Um, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who, who believe. Um, in verse 26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. So he says, first of all, the offspring is a singular offspring, it's Christ. But then it's a plural offspring, we're all his offspring, but not just because we followed Abraham and his faith, but that we followed Jesus and had Jesus as the focus and object of our faith. We become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're incorporated into Abraham's seed through Jesus, Abraham's seed. Get that? Huh? You see? That, that's how we become the children of Abraham. That's how the Gentiles become the children of Abraham. That's how believing Jews become the true spiritual seed. The true children of Abraham is through faith in Abraham's seed, who is Christ. Okay? Anybody have a question, problem, conceiving of that? Okay? Good. So, this Abrahamic covenant that, that we read about in Genesis 15 and um, is established then, uh, the language of the cutting of a covenant is used, and uh, that's a covenant that remains eternal. That's a covenant that will never end. Um, as long as God's in the business of bringing people to faith in Christ, uh, that's how God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham of this great multitude, um, as, as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Jesus, all that takes place. And in Jesus, even the book of Revelation says, that great multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. That's the promise of Abraham. And so it meets us at every single point in biblical revelation. It's one of the continuing realities. 
But the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant is not a continuing reality. Again, it's a covenant that is to be kept by obedience and broken through disobedience. Now again, I don't think the plan is that every Israelite had to be perfectly obedient. No. I mean, that's what the sacrificial system came into in terms of the need for um, atonement, uh, the need that the nation would be cleansed and uh, um, people would be able to have an approach to God through sacrifice. Um, And so it's not perfection that God was after, but it was wholehearted commitment. What does the Lord require of you is what uh, it says in Deuteronomy 10. It's that you fear the Lord, your God, that you serve him with all of your heart, that you, you love him, and you keep his commandments and his statutes and his precepts. And so there is that commitment to the Lord that is to be a wholehearted, whole-souled commitment. We'll have more to say about that in the morning worship. As we look at the text, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so it's the faithful trained, spiritually disciplined, spiritually um, capable people to enter the land that come into the land. But again, they're under this covenant with God that requires that continuous hearing of his laws and the doing of his laws. Now, this relationship of covenant uh, with Abraham uh, was a unilateral thing. God came and said, this is what he's going to do, and he's been fulfilling it ever since. Okay, But with... Um, the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant, the covenant that God gave to them at Sinai, again, uh, again, look at the language. Uh, let's look at it in Exodus chapter 19. We looked at it before, but it bears repeating. In Genesis 19, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, this is in verse, uh, the end of verse 3, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Never heard about keeping covenants before in, a, you know, the, in the book of Genesis, but now this is the covenant that is to be kept. Um, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there is a covenant that is to be kept. Now let me just back up a minute and just say something else. Um, I say that the covenant God made with Abraham was unilateral. God did it. God said this is what he will do. But um, there is another aspect of this thing, that this covenant relationship God entered into with Abraham was holy of grace. It was holy of God. And was holy of God's goodness, of God's commitment and purpose um, to form, form a people for himself, a people who will bring ultimate blessing to the nations. But yet in the receiving of those covenant promises of God, even though Abraham himself never owned anything more than a pot of land to, to bury his dead, yet he understood that he was seeking a higher thing, a better thing, a city that has foundations, as Hebrews says, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, so there were an understanding of eternal blessings, of spiritual blessings, of something that was bigger, better, greater than just Canaan itself. And even then, this is what God says with respect to his relationship to Abraham. I believe he calls his friend. He's not going to keep from Abraham what he's about to do. 
um, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In verse 17 of chapter 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, in his seed, who is Jesus. Are you with me now? Chapter 18 of Genesis. 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 Oh, you thought I was still in Exodus. No. I did? Oh, that was a slip. That was a slip. I do this. I'm 70 years of age. I do this. (laughs) Genesis chapter 18. Okay, let's back it up. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do in verse 17? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And of course, in light of what we read in Galatians, it's in Jesus that ultimately they're going to be blessed in the Abrahamic covenant. But yet, he's going to have physical descendants, and the blessings um, will come to them, at least externally. And then God says, for I've chosen him. Here, election is brought into this whole picture of God's covenant dealing. I've chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So again, you see, it's not every generation of rebellious Israelites that are going to be benefiting from this promise given to Abraham. Because the whole end of the thing is to have a holy people. The whole end of it is to have to write a righteous and obedient people. A people committed to do justice before the presence of the just and righteous God. And so he's known him and chosen him to the end that this is what he's seeking. This is what God is endeavoring to realize through Abraham's seed. This committed, holy, and obedient people. So at least somewhere along the line, when you get benefits from God in the way of covenant... And this is New Covenant as well. I think it's the, wrong, the thing that's so terrible is we tend to take the whole thing of, of grace and faith and, and detach it from, separate it from, throw it into the sea. And now, uh, 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 I'm sorry, you don't throw it into the sea. You keep the grace in that part. The part you throw in the sea is the obedience part. Is the part that says, keep the way of the Lord. Uh, heed the, the commandments of the Lord. Walk in the ways of the Lord. No, God says that's what my covenant is about. Because you see, anything that's rooted in God's grace, anything that's rooted in God's gift, demands reciprocation. Not because it's a meritorious thing. I mean, we were at a party for our niece, one year old. No, two years old. Two years old. I missed the last year's party, but I went to this year's party. Two years old. And she was amazing, sitting and opening up these gifts that were given to her. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of gifts. Never seen a kid. Jan pointed it out to me, how she sat so... Uh, I mean, she got distracted with one gift. Uh, one gift distracted her completely. But eventually she came back and she sat down and she opened the rest of the gifts. And of course, what do you tell your kids? And what should kids feel when they get these gifts? What should you and I feel when somebody goes out of their way to shop for us, to think about what we need, and they give us a gift? Um... You say, well, oh, and I'm going to earn the gift by saying thank you. No, you don't earn the gift by saying thank you. The gift is given. The gift is given freely. And the gift will be yours, even if you don't say thank you. But how boorish it is not to say thank you. Not to express some measure of gratitude. Gifts in the ancient world always demanded some kind of reciprocal response. Some kind of reciprocal action. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? That's the attitude you have to have. You get all these benefits from God and you just say, oh, yeah, that, yeah I deserve it. That's, that's right. That's right. 
God should have given me this. What, what took you so long, Lord, to give me? No, that's not what you say. If you understand grace, that grace is coming to sinners, that, that God's giving you what you simply never, ever could have anticipated, never, ever could have merited, never, ever could deserve. You, you deserve His displeasure, His wrath, eternal separation from His presence. That's what you deserve. And God says, no, I give you my presence. Not just my presence with a T, but my presence. My presence. But God says, come to me. Draw near to me. Enjoy my, the fellowship I offer you. And you say, what shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits to me? I'll take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. There's this responsiveness that's it's part of the whole matter of grace. That there should be responsiveness. Where there's no responsiveness to grace, you know what? There is no grace. Grace has not been received if there's not a response of gratitude, praise, thanksgiving. We sang it, blessed assurance, praising my Savior all the day. Where do those sentiments come from? Even though we know we haven't really measured up to it, we haven't fully attained to it, and yet we sing blessed assurance. I am my Savior, I'm happy and blessed, and perfect submission, and perfect rest, and perfect this, and perfect that. Well, none of it's perfect, I mean, but yet intent, intent, intention it is, in desire it is, that we want to be fully pleasing to the Lord. That's the attitude of the heart of God's people. But yet Israel was commanded to keep his covenant. And the demand of keeping the covenant, and not just here, here's just all this stuff, bask in the grace of it, bask in the grace of it. Now you could do that with a regenerate people. You probably could. You know, if God went and regenerated every single one of those people, broke their hearts in the face of their sin, humbled them before him, issued forth his, his forgiveness. I mean, there may have been just a sense of, wow, what the Lord has done in light of what we deserve. But these are people that never were sensible of the goodness of God in delivering them. They're looking to go back to Egypt at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> they said, wow, we're out of Egypt. We've been held in captivity there for 430. Now we're free. Now we're free. Where's the food? Where's the, where's the water? Where's this? Where's that? No, they're murmuring. They're grumbling. They're complaining against Moses and against God. Against the God that opened the sea for them. They're murmuring. No gratitude. No praise. Now this is the people that if you're going to enter the land, you keep my covenant. You hear my voice. You obey what I say. And so there's this matter of the keeping of the covenant. Then in chapter 24, what we looked at later is new things, additional things enter into it. We read about the book of the covenant. We read about the blood of the covenant. We read about covenantal meals. I was going to go a little bit deeper into that, but I'm just going to mention it this morning. I'm not going into any deeper. And then in 31.16, it said that the Sabbath is, as a, is a covenant. The Sabbath is identified as a covenant. 34.10, the Ten Commandments are identified as a covenant. You have all these things that are now brought into some close identification with a covenant. Are we really moving away from the covenantal relationship that God had with Abraham, where it was simply an oath-sworn vow of God's pledge, God's commitment? And now all these things enter in. We know all these things enter in because the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, had a distinctive, I shouldn't say distinctive, but in terms of um, you know, what we know about relationships and we know about how people enter into those relationships, it really was distinctive to the ancient world, um, the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, the surrounding nations, 
had... I mean, you read about the conquest of the land of Canaan. Go look at the measurements of the land of Canaan. And yet every city seemed to have its king, right? There were five kings here, and there were seven kings there, and there were another eight kings there, and there's a bunch of kings over here. Where do all these kings come from? Israel is just a, a strip of land there in the Middle East, in the Levant. It's not that expansive. And yet kings abounded everywhere, both in Israel and its surrounding nations. And then every once in a while there came along someone who consolidated power over a multitude of nations. Like Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh. And at times Pharaoh's uh, Egypt was overtaken by other greater kings. Uh, There were at least a couple of things that we know about. There were the group called the Hyksos. The Hyksos were Semites that came into Egypt and took over. It's likely the Hyksos were ruling in Egypt at the time when Joseph came down there because we read about a pharaoh who came later who did not know Joseph and there was this relationship with Joseph was of course he had the dreams and he you know brought the benefits to Egypt but likely they were, they may have been kin they may have been semites because there was that period of time likely in the time of Joseph when there was a semite king from the very region where Joseph had come from. And they ruled in Egypt. And then they were overthrown, and Egyptians came, and new dynasties came, and at another point when the Cushites took over, and a bunch of things happened. And, but whenever someone would take over, there would be a war, there would be um, uh, a takeover of other regions. Those people were placed under a covenant, a, a covenant of a king. Now, those ancient kings, the name that's given to them is a suzerain, uh, they, had, they exercised reign, uh, like, a, like a super reigner, I guess was how that word would be. Someone that reigned over a whole bunch of regions. And uh, I meant to copy out an example of an ancient Near Eastern covenant, uh, where a suzerain covenant, when a suzerain would take over. But it really ran like this. I'm going to put it on the board, what it was like. And then I'm going to try to explain why you have so many of these different things that are spoken of as if they were covenants. And you, you understand how this is when you really see how this parallels a lot of the stuff that you read about in, in, your, in your Bibles. Uh, these covenants would have a preamble. No, let, me get the, let me get the yellow chalk. Oh, let's do it in, in, in Egyptian pharaoh. Takes over. Puts this nation under his authority. They become his vassal. And he'd begin his, his the suzerain covenant, he's going to make them go through the pieces, he's going to make them submit to him, and he'd say, I Thutmose. That's a good Egyptian name. Ruler of the, you know, the Egyptians from the great Nile to the, the, the great river or the great sea or whatever, however you'd put it. And so there would be the preamble in which the person who is the suzerain would be introduced. Um, I think you see this in the Ten Commandments. Uh, turn to Genesis, Exodus chapter 20. And you see how some of this follows in Exodus. The Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, tends to follow some of these things. I am Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh your God. Instead of I Tutmos, it would be I am Yahweh your God. That's the preamble of the Ten Commandments. God, the God under whose authority Israel is now brought as a nation. 
God's taken them out of Pharaoh's control. Just as Tutmos would take a people that he conquered out of somebody else's control and say, now you're my people. This is what God did. God went down into Egypt and he took out a nation for himself. And he says, now you're my people. I am Yahweh, your God. Just like Tutmos would say. Okay? And then Tutmos would say, I am Tutmos, king of Egypt, who conquered you and brought you um, out of the servitude of that former king into my own servitude. So there would be something of a, a history. Okay? I said I was going to do this here. There was a history of Tutmos' relationship to the conquered people and how they got conquered. What do you read in the um, account of the Ten Commandments? I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's telling the history of this. Right in the words of the Ten Commandments. You see these expressions of things that follow this line of of, of, of covenantal dealings in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, at many, many points. We'll say more about that in maybe, probably next week. So there would be the preamble, then there would be this history. The, uh, the third thing, let's, let's number them. This is number one, this is number two, number three. There would be the, the stipulations or the obligations or the requirements that the suzerain would make of the people. So let's, let's put requirements. Now God comes, introduces himself, the words of the Ten Commandments, recites the history, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall have any likeness of anything that's in heaven and earth. On and on. God's given the stipulations. These are the things that he requires of them. And then there is this matter of the witnesses. And you don't have that in uh, Exodus um, You don't have it in Exodus 20, but you do have it in Deuteronomy at several points. And, and, and when God would bring a witness, now think of this. You know, in, in uh, Egypt, Tutmos could have his courtiers, have his people who are his servants, have a group of people from the conquered nation, and they could all say, well, we're the ones that bear witness to this covenant that we're entering into. When God is in, enters into covenant with uh, the people of Israel, who's going to witness this? Well, uh, there's a sense in which he does give something of a testimony of what occurred in terms of the two tables of stone upon which the law was given. But he calls heaven and earth to bear witness. Again and again, you find that expression, God calling heaven and earth to bear witness to his transactions with the people of Israel. God calls upon the creation itself to bear witness to his covenant dealings. So there is that parallel there that you find in the book of Deuteronomy. And then you have, uh, there's a provision for the, for the reading and the preservation of the covenant documents. You're going to sign a covenant. Okay, this, this covenant needs to be read periodically to the people that we entered into the covenant with that suzerain king he's he's our lord he's our master you know maybe some places you have the constitution being read uh, there's a founding document that explains who we are as a nation and explains what uh, 
you know, the rules of the government under which we live. Uh, we don't do that as often as we should, but that would have an historic precedent in the fact that ancient people did that sort of thing. They read their constitution, so they read their covenantal commitments, so they were reminded continually. God made provision, right, for the king, had to read it every year, had to be read. Um, there were times when covenant renewals, the law came out and the law was read. There was provision made for readings of the law and also the preservation of the law. Remember, the Book of the, book of the Covenant was placed within the, uh, the Holy of Holies. It was to be kept um, by the Ark of the Covenant. You have the words of the Ten Commandments that was to preserve, be preserved within the Ark itself. Uh, so God gave ways in which this law, this commandment, this um, suzerain treaty he's making with the nation should be preserved and it should be read. And then the final thing that these things had were the section of blessings and curses. Uh, here's what you get when you're faithful to old King Tutmos. And, you know, he, he's, 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 uh, he'll, he's, I'm your shepherd, he'll tell you. I, I, that's written into the covenant language like that. Tutmos the shepherd, you know, uh, who loves you. Language of love is even expressed in a lot of these ancient treaties. Um, and here are the blessings. If you follow and obey You'll know my protection. You'll know my continued favor. You'll know that I would never leave you without uh, defense when some other king is looking to attack you. I will be there to come to your defense. Uh, you think NATO had a strong you know, agreement to come to the aid of a, of a nation. Well, when you're under a suzerain, the suzerain was going to come to your defense. And it would go into the very enumeration of the blessings of this relationship and then there would be something that would also be the curses should you defy in your folly the one who is your suzerain the one who is your overlord the one who is the one who is loves you and is protecting you and shepherding you and doing all these things for you then he will turn upon you and this is what you can expect to receive and you know you have these very things in the book of Deuteronomy you have the whole section of chapter 28 with the blessings and the cursings if you keep my law and you obey it um, you know, you, blessing will overtake you wherever you are whatever you're doing blessings will come in full measure anyway and then the curses that, that are, are that which follows so it does follow this and the importance of this is coming to understand some of the ways in which the Bible speaks about this covenant relationship how does it come about that the, that the, the laws now become the covenant the book of the covenant Wait a minute, how does that become the Book of the Covenant? How does that get related to the Covenant? Well, it gets related to the Covenant is because it's part of this overall structure of God's arrangement with them. And so the Ten Commandments becomes the Covenant, sometimes the testimony to the Covenant. Um, the blessings are the blessings of the Covenant. The God is the God of the Covenant. It becomes you know, all part of the Covenant relationship, any one single part can be taken for the whole. I think that's how I, I see it. When I see those expressions, uh, how, how does now the covenant, which was simply the oath that he swore for a thousand generations, how does now that, now that become the Ten Commandments? Well, it's because this broader covenant 
relationship that is likened unto this ancient Near Eastern form of covenant is exactly the way God entered into relationship with his people. Okay? Y'all with me on that? Any questions, comments? And so the covenant can be viewed in terms of its preamble and stipulations, its promises, its sanctions, its blessings, its cursings. All of it is is part of um, the covenant treaty. I'm talking to Pastor Nichols about this uh, on Monday, uh, and just his sense that the, the the idea of a peace treaty is a very compelling and accurate way. Uh, to view this relationship that God has with his people. Uh, And understanding peace treaty is not just the cessation of a conflict, but the presence of abundance, the presence of shalom, God's peace, that's conferred upon his people. Again, the the blessing that the priests would convey, putting God's name upon the people, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, Uh, and uh, the Lord... I forgot what the rest of it is. One more thing in that, and give you peace is the final thing. And give you his shalom. That's the priestly blessing and that the, 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 the covenant people are to receive. So that's the relationship that God enters into with the nation at Mount Sinai. And again, when the people go after other gods, when the people fail to heed his voice, when they commit... The idolatrous actions of Canaanites and Egyptians and Babylonians, and they uh, fall before these foreign deities that are no gods at all. Um, then God says, "You broke it. You broke my covenant. Which my covenant you broke." And so you have a series in the Old Testament of covenant breakings, judgments that God brings. The Book of Judges is that just that very thing. The people forget God, they go worship idols, and God brings uh, another nation to bring them into captivity. He brings the Moabites, brings the Amalekites, brings other nations to bring them under their rule until they cry out to the Lord in the midst of their burden and their misery. And then the Lord hears their voice and raises up a Savior and uh, then brings them uh, to renew the covenant with him. And then he usually says in the book of Judges, and the land had peace for X amount of years. And then they forgot the Lord. And then they went back in that same old cycle of rebelling and idolatry. And then God brings another nation and brings them to be humbled. And uh, that whole process goes on, time without number, until the king comes to the throne. Um, and then there's a, a longer period of peace, a longer period of prosperity. But then the descendants of David fell, fail. Uh, to be a king after God's own heart as David was and uh, they don't measure up and we'll see in coming weeks uh, I'm actually I shouldn't say that I don't intend to do this for coming weeks I intend to do this for one more week and then I intend to give you something of the basic outline of how of what I think the scriptures are doing in making these covenant commitments that God makes agents of restoration of creation's blessings I think that's what's happening here this, these things have to do with, with, with the restoration of creation's blessing. And so you have the blessing to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Um, blessing of the land, blessing of the progeny, this great multitude. Um, 
But then there's the blessing of have dominion over it. And that's where David comes in. That's where the Davidic throne comes in. That's where the notion of kingship comes in. And uh, we'll trace that out just a bit. And then what I'm thinking of doing is just calling it to an end at that point, going back to our studies in the book, uh, in Paul's letters. I'm thinking maybe of next summer, taking it forward into the New Testament. It's, but again, that remains to be seen. But I, at least to this point, um, I think we've done for this summer what I intended to do. Comments or questions before we conclude? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are the God of rescue. You rescue a world from itself, from its sin, from its rebellion, from its commitment to serve other gods that are no gods. And Lord, we are thankful that you, you come in the person of your Son to be the God who restores, to bring us back to what you intended creation to be of your creatures, your image bearers following you and communing with you and loving you and, and adoring you and serving you and knowing the prosperity that comes from a relationship of intimacy and peace and joy in your presence. We're thankful that Jesus has come to bring us back to the garden, come back to bring us to the blessings you designed for your creation and a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. We're thankful we can consider something of the way in which you unfold these realities to your people and your word, how you bring us to see the need that continues to exist, that never quite gets fulfilled in Israel. They never quite live up to their calling. They never quite do what you would have them to do. And we're thankful, Lord, that the seed of Abraham that does bring the promised blessing about has come in history, has come in the person of your son, We're thankful that what Israel failed to do, he has done. What Adam failed to do, he has achieved. What we could never do in and of ourselves, Jesus has done. In the death that he died, in the resurrection power that he brings, in the fullness of the blessings that the new covenant confers. And we pray that we would be a grateful people. We know what we deserve. And we have some sense, Lord, of the greatness of the blessings that you have given. So give us grace, we pray, to walk in gratitude to render to you the faithful service that redeemed sinners should be bringing to you out of glad and joyful hearts. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we have a time of fellowship, as we enter into the morning hour of worship. And we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.